Well, it sure has been a while. We've got uh, about four months worth of sermons to catch up on, and Lord willing, we'll do that over the next four weeks. Uh, last time, which was, again, a while ago, we looked at chapter 10, and we got our first hint that all was not quite right with Saul. And what the Scripture revealed to us is that when left to stand on the constitution of his own heart, that Saul is a spiritual coward. And the text gave us two different stories from Saul's ascension to the throne in which he cowered from duty. In the first of these stories, Samuel anointed Saul as king and told Saul that he would encounter three signs as he went up the hill of Gibeath Elohim, where he would find a garrison of Philistines station. And these three signs that he would encounter were meant to serve as a confirmation to him that his anointing as king was truly from God and that God would be with him to accomplish the duties of that kingship. And sure enough, all the signs met Saul exactly as God predicted, and he went up to the top of that hill with the command, do what your hand finds to do. In other words, slay the Philistines and demonstrate publicly that God has anointed you as the king. And you may recall that in verse 13 of chapter 10, the text tells us Saul makes it to the top of the mountain. He sees all the Philistines stationed there with all of their armor and swords, etc. And right when the conflict is supposed to happen, right when we're expecting a, a narration of the fight and how it unfolded, in the very next verse, Saul is back at home with his uncle, too ashamed to even mention the kingship to him. In other words, there was no conflict because Saul cowered in the face of danger and refused to do what God commanded him to do. Now, for the sake of expositional integrity, I do need to make a correction to the exegesis from the last sermon. The text says that the Philistines were at the top of the hill called Gibeath, or sometimes referred to as Gibeah. And I argued that the, and you may not even remember this because it's been so long, but it's recorded and on the record, so I want to I get it straight. I argued that the tabernacle was potentially on this hill because in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, uh, Solomon ascends a hill called Gibeon, where uh, the tabernacle is located. Now, Gibeah or Gibeath both mean, you can hear how they're similar words, they mean hill in Hebrew, and the word Gibeon is also related to the word for hill in Hebrew. And I knew that Saul was climbing a hill just north of Jerusalem, and that in 2 Chronicles 1, Solomon was coming up a hill just north of Jerusalem. And since the words have the same etymology, I just conflated them together and said it was the same site. But then as I thought about the text the next day, I remembered, I about slapped myself in the face. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, when David goes to get the holy bread at the tabernacle, the tabernacle is in a location called Nob, not at Gibeon. And so I pulled out my detailed maps of Israel and looked, and sure enough, there is a small distinction between the hills of Gibeah and Gibeon. Now it gets confusing because they are both a part of a series of hills north of Jerusalem, which includes the following, Gibeah, or Gibeah, Gibeon, Geba, uh, Nob, Rama, and Bethel. They're all right next to each other within a couple of miles. Uh, but the point is, the tabernacle was probably not at the top of the hill that Saul was climbing. So I just wanted to get that error corrected on the record uh, because the task of preaching is worthy of correcting it and owning it when you get it wrong. So, fortunately, that does not change the overall point we were making about the cowardice of Saul, that he was commanded to slay the Philistines who were certainly at the top of that hill regardless of whether the tabernacle was there. Now, that was the first example of Saul's cowardice. The second example of Saul's cowardice was uh, seen in the story where God has Samuel publicly assemble all of Israel, 
And he's going to anoint, uh, or should I say, publicly reveal that Saul is his choice as king to all the nation because Saul had failed to make that known in slaying the Philistines. And so the lot is cast, and the choice is made of Saul, and yet when they are uh, ready to see their, their savior, their king, who's going to come forward and defeat their enemies, they find him cowering behind uh, a bag. And so we saw very clearly that Saul was a spiritual coward. He fought cowardice with cowardice. Now that's where we left off last time. But as we prepare to transition to today's text, I want you to consider the question that we are left with at this point in the text. God has anointed Saul as king. He said he will use him. But everything we saw in chapter 10 reveals to us that through his cowardice, Saul seems on the surface at least to have thwarted God's intention and his word. And what we are going to see is that in today's text, several other characters share a similar assessment of the situation. They agree that God's word and God's purposes for Israel have failed. And so therefore I am titling this sermon, The Justification of God's Word. I've broken the exposition up into three points. Here are the three points. First, we will see the Word of God challenged internally. Second, the Word of God challenged externally. And third, the Word of God pneumatically vindicated. First then, the Word of God challenged internally. Now when I say internally, I mean from within Israel itself, the nation of Israel. The explicit challenge to God's Word internally will come in chapter 10 and verse 27. But before that, verses 25 and 26 set the stage by reminding us of what God had said and how clearly He had said it. We read in verse 25, Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Now remember, in this context, they're, they're still at that, that meeting, God had just publicly chosen Saul by lot, and Samuel had verbally interpreted that action to mean that God had chosen Saul for kingship. And here in verse 25, that verbal proclamation that Saul is the king is given a formal inscripturation. I don't mean uh, divine inspiration necessarily, but written down. Samuel writes it down as a divine contract between God, the king, and the people. And the text says he lays it up before the Lord. That is technical language. That means he took it inside the tabernacle itself and set a copy of it inside as a witness and a testimony to God's word. And so therefore, this contract is something that God approved of. He approved of it being laid up before him. And so therefore, we and the people of Israel are clearly informed that despite their sinful reasons for demanding a king, that God is going to give them one and that he has a purpose in so doing. Then in verse 26, God confirms how he expects the Israelites to respond to the man whom he has chosen. We read there, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. In other words, the people were supposed to unite themselves to God's anointed. The text says that if a man did so, it was actually a sign that God himself had touched that person's heart. Now, don't jump ahead to what you know is coming from Saul and think, well, how could God want them to unite themselves to a man like this when we know what's going to become of him? Read the text in the order that the events unfold in time. If you are an Israelite at this assembly, God has proclaimed to you, via the lot, 
by his prophet's word, by an inscripturated contract in the holy place, and via his work in the hearts of godly men, that he has chosen Saul for king, and he intends to use him to, quote, save Israel from the hand of their enemies. So in other words, what I want you to see is that God has made this abundantly clear. His word has gone forth about what he intends in Saul's anointing. And God expects them to act on the basis of what he has revealed, not what has not yet unfolded in God's hidden decrees. And so if I'm an Israelite, and God has said that he's chosen this man as king, then it's my job to believe God and to support him. That's exactly the attitude that we will see, for example, David taking toward this man Saul, even in the midst of Saul's violence and insanity. And yet, in verse 27, we read this. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. Here we have men who are described as worthless fellows. The term in Hebrew literally rendered is sons of Belial or sons of worthlessness. And what is it that they have done here specifically that constitutes them as worthy of receiving the title sons of worthlessness? Well, they raise a question. Can this man save us? Now, on the surface, that actually seems like a very logical and reasonable question to be asking. Put yourself back in their situation. Samuel calls a national assembly together to reveal the man who's going to be your king. This is the man who's allegedly going to be fighting your battles against your enemies. And the Lord reveals this man by a lot, but rather than stepping forward and boldly uh, claiming the throne, you have to search for him, and you find him cowering behind some bags. Now, to be honest, would you not be tempted to say, is this guy supposed to be the one that's going to save us? If the United States enters into a, a war with a foreign nation, or we could phrase it as a foreign nation is going to start a war with us, they're going to try to invade us, and the president holds a press conference, and he, he uh, walks out this man whom he has hand-chosen to be the savior of the United States. He's going to lead the war against this foreign enemy, and as the man comes to the podium to speak, he's stammering and stuttering in fear at the task ahead of him. Would we not all reasonably say, you've got to be kidding me? And we would rightly be able to say that wisdom actually dictates that in this situation, we not give this man the job. He's not qualified. And so on the surface, the sons of worthlessness seem to be making a legitimate point. But what's the issue? The issue is that unlike the America illustration, in this instance, God has given special revelation. He's given his own verdict by his word that he, God, will accomplish salvation through this man. And so in this situation, the people's response was not supposed to be based on an evaluation of the merits or demerits of Saul, but upon whether they believed what God had said. The problem with the worthless men is not that they misjudged Saul. The problem was that they observed something that they thought contradicted God's word, and rather than trusting in the Lord and leaning not on their own understanding, they leaned upon themselves and they called God a liar. Their response, in other words, reveals what they think about God, that he is impotent and that his word will not prove true. And we'll have more to say about those, those men in next week's sermon. But just note right here at the beginning of the story, our text is explicitly framed by the fact that God's word is being challenged and sadly from within the covenant people of God. And that brings us to the second point, the word of God challenged externally. We'll move into chapter 11 now. Here we meet a man named Nahash the Ammonite. 
The Ammonites, as most of you know, were descended from Lot when uh, his youngest daughter got him intoxicated and lay with him. The Ammonites' territory was east of Israel. I think that would be in this direction if you were looking at a map. And in this text, we read that Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. Now, even though this is the first time we have met Nahash, the Scripture tells us this is not actually the first time that this man has attacked Israel. In the next chapter, when Samuel is uh, recounting his life of ministry amongst the people, he's going to say this to Israel. When you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came up against you, then you said to me, no, but a king will reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Now notice, when Samuel mentions Nahash coming against Israel, he's not talking about what we're reading in today's text. How do we know that? Because Samuel says that in response to Nahash's attacks, that's when the people came and gave their initial demand for a king. That happened way back in chapter 8. So now we find out that Nahash is the man whose attacks actually led to Israel's sinful demand for a king. And therefore, speaking from the perspective of secondary causes, Nahash is actually the reason that Saul is being raised up in the first place. Keep that in mind. Now, notice what happens when Nahash arrives at the city. We read in verse 1 that all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. Now, this is not supposed to be the case. And this shows us that not all is well in Israel. One of the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant was that if they obeyed, they would, quote, be the head and not the tail with respect to the nations, and that God would set them high above the nations. And yet here, a threat from the nations comes to Israel, and these Israelite men are immediately asking to become his slaves. Basically, you be the head, we'll be the tail, just please don't hurt us. How does Nahash respond? Well, in the typical fashion of the tyrannical kings of the earth, he is not content with mere surrender. He wants to humiliate. And so he says, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace upon Israel. Now, why gouge out the right eye? Well, the text doesn't say this for certain, but it's probably true that in addition to uh, wanting to humiliate these men, Nahash also has uh, some very practical reasons for doing this. If you gouge out the right eyes of men, what can they never become? Effective soldiers in warfare. And specifically, the right eye in ancient warfare was the most useful eye. Why? Because most people are right-handed, and so when soldiers go out to war, they carry their shield in their left hand. And they carry a shield with the left hand, the left eye is usually blocked. Which means what? That you're having to do your fighting with your right eye as you peer out from behind the shield. And so when you gouge out their right eyes, you have basically neutered them, ensuring that they can never rise up in rebellion in the future. So, now the men of Jabesh, they've been given an ultimatum, and they have a decision to make. Do they risk almost certain death by fighting him when they're outnumbered, or do they consent to lose their right eyes? Well, they don't seem to like either of those options, understandably, so they come up with a different proposal. And it's here that we're going to begin to see the Word of God challenged and mocked boldly. We read in verse 3, The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we'll give ourselves up to you. So in other words, they say, we choose option C. We want to call for help. Now, if you've never heard this story before, and you read that there's a king who's about to invade Jabesh Gilead, and yet the men of the city ask him to hold off on the invasion so that they can try to find more people to come and help fight against him, 
How do you expect that king's going to respond? By saying, how about no? Now, we do not have Nahash's verbal response recorded here. But we come to verse 4 and we read this. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people. What does that mean? That Nahash agreed to this proposal. He let them go for help. Now, wait a minute. Why on earth would Nahash agree to let them do this? There is absolutely no strategic advantage obtainable by letting these messengers go call for help. For Nahash, this is all risk, zero reward from a military perspective. If the messengers go and can't find help, then Nahash is in no better position to invade than he is right now. But if they do find help, it's going to be even harder to take the city. So he's not doing this for, for, for practical reasons. So then what is he doing? He is openly and defiantly questioning two distinct but interconnected things at the same time. First, he is challenging that God can and will save his people through a king. And second, he is accusing the people of God of being ununited and unconcerned for one another. Now, I want to look at both of those challenges and develop them a little bit. First, he is challenging that God can save his people through a king. Now, as I said, this is not Nahash's first attack on Israel. It seems that he had been uh, inspiring fear in the nation for some time, especially in the tribes east of the Jordan River. Now, if you are a competent military general in ancient warfare who is engaging in a campaign against an enemy nation... One of the first things that you're going to want to do is find out um, as much about that nation as you can. You're going to gather intelligence, in other words. You don't just attack at random places and hope for the best. And so we have every reason to believe that Nahash, whose country bordered Israel, he's right next door, has been keeping track of what's happening in Israel. And we don't know this infallibly, but it's quite possible and probable, because this was common practice in the ancient world, that he had spies in the land. And since we know that he had already been attacking Israel, then when all of Israel in chapter 10 gathered together, the whole nation gathers for a national assembly with Samuel, do you think Nahash was ignorant of that? If you're trying to conquer a country and they hold a public national assembly, everybody in the nation gathers under their current leader, are you going to be ignorant of that? You would be a terrible military strategist if you were. And so we have every reason to believe that Nahash received a report about Israel's demand for a king. And that as Samuel stated publicly, Yahweh intended to give them one. In addition to that, Israel held another national assembly right before today's text when Saul was chosen by Lot. And so at that, at that assembly, God had publicly revealed who the specific choice for king was. Nahash is not ignorant of this. He may not have been present at those assemblies. I'm sure he wasn't. But it's strange credulity to think he had absolutely no idea what was going on in a nation he was seeking to conquer. And so from Nahash's perspective, the God of Israel has declared that he's going to raise up a king who will defend Israel from their surrounding enemies. And Nahash is such an enemy. And so as a prideful and bloodthirsty man, he's thinking to himself, oh, your God, said that he would save you from men like me. He said that he would raise up a king. Fine. Let's see him actually do it. You see, the fact that he lets 
the men of Jabesh send messengers out for help tells you that he doesn't just want to conquer the city. He's after much more than that. He wants to show that the God of Israel cannot and will not fulfill his word to save them through a king. They can go and seek help from him all they want, but in Nahash's mind, it will not do any good. There is literally no other explanation for why he would agree to let these messengers go out for help. Now, this kind of reminds you, if, if you are familiar with your Old Testament, this kind of reminds you of the attack of the Assyrians against Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah. The Assyrian king sends a man called the, the Rabshakeh, I think that's how you pronounce it, to the walls of Jerusalem. And the, the messenger from the Assyrians starts shouting out to everybody inside, don't, don't let Hezekiah reassure you that Yahweh's going to save you. You think your God will do what he said to protect you? Look at all the other nations. Has any of their gods been able to stop them from our hand destroying the cities? Have any of the other gods been able to save their people? It's the exact same thing in this text. It's a full frontal assault on the Word of God. Now, that's the first thing that Nahash is questioning in this text, that God would save Israel through a king. But there is a second thing he's challenging as well. He's also making an accusation against the people of God. Specifically, by letting these messengers go for help, Nahash is actually asserting that the people of God are not united, and if given the opportunity, they're not coming to rescue the men of Jabesh. Now, if you were an Israelite reading this text and you knew the basic history of your nation, then as you read through this, the names, the locations, and the actions of the characters would immediately start to bring some things to your mind from your nation's history. And specifically, it would bring to mind the themes of unity and disunity within the people of God. Now, most of us didn't grow up as Israelites, and so I'm going to have to give you the necessary background to this chapter so that you can hear that the author intends us to understand this as an assault upon the unity of God's people. I want you, in other words, to make the connections that the author intends you to make so that you can really understand the significance of what Nahash is doing. So let's look for just a moment at the unity of Israel. In Israel's earliest days, God repeatedly emphasized to them over and over the necessity of being united as one people with one mind and with one purpose. God had redeemed them. He had created them, in his own words, to be a, a city set upon a hill as a light to the nations. But that could only happen if the people set themselves to that purpose. If half of them lived as devils, then there would be tension and strife between them, and they would not be a witness to the world. In other words, the display of God's glory on the earth depended upon Israel's unity. And one of the primary ways that their unity was to come out and be displayed was in a desire to willingly give themselves for the mutual protection of one another, whatever the risk. There are two places that you see this emphasized in the earliest days. The first comes in Numbers 32. Before the people have even entered the land, the tribes of Reuben and Gad start to look at the vast pasture lands on the east side of the Jordan that they are going to be inheritors of, and they begin to fall in love with them. And they actually come up to Moses and they say, let us dwell in the pasture lands and do not make us cross the Jordan to conquer the land therein. In other words, 
They were very thankful for everybody's help in securing the land that they were going to inherit by driving out the inhabitants. But they were ready to start farming, and they weren't so eager to help conquer the rest of the land on the other side of the Jordan that everybody else was going to live in. Now, this is about the worst idea that you can come up with when it comes to fostering unity among a people. And Moses rebukes them in the strongest of terms, saying, Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of this people as your fathers did when they went to spy out the land? Now behold, you have arisen in your father's place, you brood of sinful men. You will increase all the more the fierce wrath of Yahweh against this people. You see, these tribes proposed to destroy the unity of Israel through an unwillingness to risk themselves to save their brothers. And Moses said, that attitude right there, that's what's going to draw God's wrath against this people. That mentality will destroy us. That's the first example of unity. We see the second example of the urgency of unity displayed shortly after they enter the land. In the days of Deborah the judge, God gave Israel into the hand of Jabin, king of the Canaanites, and Sisera, the commander of his armies. You recall that Deborah and Barak summon an army from within Israel, and they go out, and God gives them victory, and they destroy Jabin and Sisera. Now, I was going to have some extensive quotations from Deborah's famous song that she sings afterward. For the sake of time, I'm just going to basically summarize it. In her song, Deborah repeatedly extols the virtue of unity through self-giving and condemns disunity through inaction. She actually goes and lists all of the tribes who willingly gave themselves as the army of the Lord and says, I bless God for their willingness. I bless the Most High that they marched out in unity. She just goes on and on, listing all the different names of the tribes and the cities and the peoples who came out as one to defeat the enemy. But then afterwards, she laments how tribes like Asher and Reuben and Dan sat by the fields and by the coastlands while their brothers went to war. And the angel of the Lord himself even gets involved in this song. And it says, he pronounces a curse upon the city of Miraz because they didn't send anybody out to fight in this war. And to this day, you read any commentary on the book of Judges, they'll all tell you, we have no earthly idea where the city of Miraz was in Israel. It's the only place it's mentioned. Why? Because the curse worked. That's how seriously God took this. He destroyed that city completely. Unity is repeatedly emphasized again and again in Israel's formative days. But you can see in the examples I just quoted that the seeds of disunity were already germinating within the people early on. The inclination of the Reubenites and the Gadites was to abandon Israel in the days of Moses. And Reuben, Gad, Dan, and Asher did not answer the call to fight Sisera. And as we continue through the book of Judges, as you probably well know, the, the wickedness increases, it seems, with each generation, as does the fracturing of the nation. And when you come to the end of Judges, chapters 19 to 21, you actually reach the lowest point in the nation's history where the unity of the people is completely severed in two. And the events of our text today, 1 Samuel chapter 11, are explicitly framed by what happens in Judges 19 to 21. You literally cannot understand this text. You'll, you'll read past it and go, well, that's a semi-interesting historical note there. Not exactly sure what was going on. If you don't understand the connections of this text to Judges 19 to 21. In Judges 19, one of the Levites goes to retrieve a concubine who's left his home. And after retrieving her, 
the man, his servant, and the concubine stop in a particular city. Hold on to the name. It's the city of Gibeah. And they're going to spend the night there. And they're going to sleep in the town square out in public. But a man comes along and says, no, no, don't, don't sleep in the town square. You need to come to my house and spend the night instead. And so that night, the men of the city, whom the text calls worthless men, sons of Belial, same phrase from our text today, surround the home and demand to have the man uh, who owned the concubine and his servant come out to them. They might fornicate with them. But the man in the home tells the villagers to take the concubine instead and violate her. And so they do. Now, the point of the text so far in, that, in, in Judges 19 was to basically make the point that Israel had become like Sodom and Gomorrah. This is exactly what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? They were going to sleep in the middle of the square. Lot takes them into his house. The men of the city come. They let us lie with them. And they say, no, take these women instead. Right? It's literally a repetition of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the point is, Israel has descended to that level. But then it gets even worse because Israel surpasses the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because when the Levite comes out the next morning and finds his concubine dead, what does he do with her? He takes her body, dismembers it, cuts it up into 12 pieces, and sends a piece of her body out to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And when the tribes receive these body parts, we read in chapter 20 and verse 1, that all Israel assembled themselves together before the Lord. In other words, we finally got unity. But it's not a unity to destroy the Canaanites. It's not a unity to conquer the land, as God has said. It's a unity to destroy one of their own. And the result is civil war and the utter destruction of the tribe of Benjamin. Only 600 of the 26,000 warriors from Benjamin survived. We could not get unity to complete the conquest or to defend each other against God's enemies. But when it's time to destroy each other, now we get unity, ironically. That's how low Israel had sunk in that text. But it gets even worse, because only 600 men survived, as I said, from Benjamin. And all the women were killed. So now these men have no wives. And if things continue and they don't get wives, then all the 600 are going to die out and the entire tribe of Benjamin is going to be gone. One of the 12 tribes is going to be lost. So Israel, the rest of the nation, needs to find wives for Benjamin. Only problem, they've taken a vow that says we're not going to give any of our, our, our uh, daughters to these men for their wives. So they need a way to resolve the quandary. And they realize that even though almost all of Israel came out to fight against Benjamin in the Civil War, there was one city, just one, that did not send anybody to fight Benjamin. And that city was Jabesh Gilead. And so all of Israel goes out and slaughters Jabesh Gilead. And they take 400 virgins and give them as wives to the Benjamites. Utter insanity. All of it. And that's the point. And the book ends with that famous statement that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, we've reached the lowest point in Israel's history. We have sexual and murderous wickedness that's exceeded Sodom and Gomorrah and we have zero unity as they descend into this self-destructive civil war. And there is no king to offer protection and correction and to unite the people under God. Now, why did I go through all that? Because the two cities that emerge prominently from that whole episode in the book of Judges are Gibeah and Jabesh Gilead. Gibeah, where the concubine was raped and murdered, and Jabesh Gilead, who would not fight in the war. Those two cities, in other words, epitomize the lowest point for Israel's nation. And so then as we come back to 1 Samuel 11, lo and behold, 
our story begins with sons of worthlessness, and the two cities that our text centers around are Gibeah and Jabesh Gilead, just like Judges 19 to 21. So what's the point? The point is this. We can be confident that Nahash coming against Jabesh Gilead is no coincidence. Nahash, king of the Ammonites, Nahash and his people knew what took place in Israel's civil war. They knew that Israel had come out and slaughtered all of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. Why would they have known that? Because Jabesh Gilead was on the border of Ammon. And if you're your next door neighbor, the whole nation comes out to one town that's bordering your nation and slaughters them all, you're going to know about that. And so Nahash determines that the perfect way to accuse the people of God of being ununited and unwilling to defend one another is to assault Jabesh Gilead. Because in his mind, this city is the epitome of division within Israel. Jabesh did not come out to support Israel against Benjamin in the Civil War, and then Israel turned around and slaughtered most of their population. And so when the men of Jabesh asked to send messengers out for help, Nahash thinks to himself, you go right ahead. There is no chance that Israel is going to come and help you when you abandon them in their time of need. And men of Jabesh, if you really want to call all of the nation of Israel to come to your city, that's fine. It didn't turn out so well for you the last time that all of Israel assembled themselves to come out to your town. That's the accusation. By letting the messengers go, Nahash is not only asserting that God won't save his people through his king, but he's also accusing the people of God of being unwilling to act as that unified city on a hill, zealous for the glory of God and the well-being of one another. In other words, Nahash takes everything that God said would be true and says, not so. Now, before we go on to examine God's response to all of this, perhaps you still need to be convinced that the text is intending us to view Nahash's actions as a challenge to the Word of God. Is that what's really going on here? Well, there is still yet one important detail about Nahash that I have not revealed to you that I think will erase any doubt. And here it is. This is not the first time that we have seen Nahash question God's word in the scriptures. The first time that we encounter Nahash in the Bible, we read this. Now the Nahash was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the Nahash said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Yes. Nahash is the Hebrew word for serpent. I actually went and looked it up in the Hebrew Bible, and sure enough, it's the same word in our text that's used in Genesis 3, Nahash. Now, that raises some questions. Nahash is a Hebrew word. The Ammonites did not speak Hebrew. Nahash's mommy did not name him the Hebrew word for serpent, Nahash. So either his mother chose to name him the Ammonite word for snake, interesting mother, and the author of 1 Samuel is just translating his name from Ammonite into Hebrew as just a mere coincidence, or as is very often the case with these ancient kings, the author calls him Nahash to make a specific point. And we don't know for sure which of the two that it is, but in either case, the author very clearly intends for us to understand the significance of calling him Nahash, the serpent. The author knew the Pentateuch, and he knew that 
the Nahash came to our first parents and his diabolical plan was to question the word of God. Did God really say that you may not eat of it? Did God really say that he would save you through his anointed? Did God really say that his people would be unified and willing on the day of his power? The serpent, in other words, is back. And so the word of God has now been challenged externally from a diabolical intruder into the holy kingdom, just as it was in Genesis 3. So then, that brings us to the climactic point. The word of God pneumatically vindicated. Now here our pace to the text is going to quicken just a bit. Pneumatology, as, mo- as many of you will know, means uh, the spirit. Or pneumatology is the study of the spirit. Pneumatically means via the spirit. So the stage has been set. The Nahash has challenged God's word by letting the messengers of Jabesh go and seek help. And now we are left to wonder, will the serpent's challenge be refuted? An answer of this section is an emphatic, yes, it will. And what we'll see is that when the word of God is challenged, it is the task of the Spirit of God to vindicate that word. Because in this section, the Spirit of God is going to answer both challenges that Nahash set out in this text to God's word. To see that, take a look at verse 4. We read there that the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul. Note that they came to Gibeah. Why would these messengers go straightway to Gibeah? Well, there are probably several reasons. First, remember that in the Civil War, as we said, the Israelites took uh, 400 virgins from Jabesh-Gilead and gave them to the men of Benjamin. Gibeah is in what tribe? It's in Benjamin. So a lot of those virgins that came from Jabesh-Gilead went to the town of Gibeah. And so therefore, the bloodlines between these two cities are very interconnected. There's a lot of family ties between them. Second, while most of Israel probably resented Jabesh because they did not come out to fight in the war, the Gibeites, on the other hand, probably had a soft spot for this city because Jabesh was the only city that did not send to attack them in the war. So there would be a natural affinity between them. But the third reason that the messengers went to this city was probably also because Gibeah was housing the man whom God had chosen to be king. What does Jabesh need right now? They need somebody to defend them. Well, God has happened to say that this man's going to be king. Where is Saul? In Gibeah, Gibeah of Saul. And so they naturally go to where Saul is living. For all those reasons, it makes sense. And when the people of Gibeah hear the report about Nahash, they begin to weep. Probably because they knew the state that Israel was in, in this completely ununified form. And that Saul, the anointed king, has thus far shown nothing but weakness and cowardice. And so therefore the nation is in no position to repel the assaults of Nahash. And the people of Gibeah are probably thinking, we're next. There's no chance that anybody's going to stop him from slaughtering Jabesh Gilead. And once he's done there, he's not going to tuck tail and go back to Ammon. He's going to continue to march through the country, and we're probably going to be slaughtered as well. But here's where we see God begin to respond. Verse 5, Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Now there we have an explicit statement. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. It doesn't say Saul summoned the Holy Spirit or that he sought out the Spirit. It says the Spirit of God rushed upon him. The Spirit is a person, in other words. He's not a force. He's not an inanimate object. He has a will. And in this instance, he willed to come upon Saul. And the fact that he willed to do something 
means that he has a purpose that he is accomplishing. Notice the effect that it has on Saul. It says Saul became angry, not angry at the spirit, but at the report about Nahash. Now, this ought to raise a couple of questions. If, if, I know it's been a long time, but if you remember the events of the last chapter, this ought to raise a couple of questions for us. Last time, we saw what happened when Saul was confronted by a foreign military power, the Philistines. He cowered in fear. Now, all of a sudden, we got another foreign military power threatening him. He's ready to confront the enemy. He's ready to go. And the reason for the sudden change is quite clear. The Spirit of God has come upon him. But the problem is that in the last chapter, when Saul cowered in fear in face of the Philistines, it says the Spirit of God rushed upon him in that context as well. So why did the Spirit of God rushing on him in chapter 10 not produce the same kind of bold, angry response in him that we are seeing today? We have to remember that God is, I think I've said this in a previous sermon, God is trying to accomplish two things through Saul. On the one hand, Saul is not the king from the tribe of Judah that God prophesied from long ago. This is not God's ultimate choice for the kingship. And so he intends for Saul to be a curse, and therefore, in the last chapter, he wanted to show what Saul really was inside, a wicked coward. And so the Spirit came upon him in chapter 10 in order to show Saul that God was with him, but the Spirit did not override Saul's natural disposition so that his cowardice would come through. But on the other hand, God has said that he will use Saul, despite his wickedness, to defeat Israel's enemies. And so in this text, the Spirit works over and beyond Saul's natural disposition. He sort of overrides it to accomplish the purpose of vindicating the Word of God, which is being challenged. And so he gives Saul a supernatural courage that lies beyond, goes beyond what lies in his own heart. In other words, God is free to work as he wishes. This is God accomplishing all of his holy purposes according to his wisdom, not man's. Secondly, under this point, notice Saul's decisive action in verse 7. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Now, there ought to be some alarm bells going off in your mind when you, when you read those actions. He takes an ox, he cuts it in 12 pieces, and he sends the pieces throughout all of Israel. What is that obviously an allusion to? Judges 19, when the Levite's concubine was chopped up into 12 pieces and sent out to all of Israel. Now, this is kind of the central question of the text that, that commentators have wrestled with, but I don't think it's all that hard to answer. Why would the Spirit of God rush upon Saul and inspire him to reenact that scene in this particular moment? Because doing so is a direct response to the serpent's challenge. Nahash came to Jabesh-Gilead to assert that God would not save his people through the king that had been anointed. And Nahash chose Jabesh-Gilead in order to call to mind the disunity and the wickedness of Judges 19 to 21, the lowest point in Israel's history, because there, which came about because there was no king in Israel. So in other words, Nahash is saying, God may have anointed a king, but the state of Israel and God's rule over Israel is really no different now than it was back then. And so the Spirit says, very well, if the serpent is going to appeal to that low point in the nation's history, 
in order to question my ability to carry out my word, then I'm going to respond by taking the very king that Nahash says, I can't work salvation through, and I'm going to inspire him to send out a message to all the people that explicitly brings to mind that low point that Nahash is mocking, but now I'm going to reverse it. And instead of shame and reproach from those events, rather than ruin and death, there's going to be victory and glory. You, serpent, think that I can't work salvation through this weak and cowardly man. Then watch this. And so the Spirit rushes upon Saul, spurs him into action. The exact opposite thing that we saw from Saul in chapter 10. But brethren, it's only because God allowed us to see Saul's cowardice in the last chapter that when we come to the events of this text, we are forced to look at it and what Saul does and ascribe the power to God alone. So that's the Spirit's response to Nahash's accusation that God will not save through the king. He empowers that king to respond to the threat. The Spirit's not done refuting the serpent's accusations because Nahash not only challenged the word concerning the king, but he also accused the people of being unwilling to unite themselves to save their fellow Israelites. And so we read in verse 7 that when the tribes received the pieces of the ox, quote, the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Now here is a people, the Israelites, who have shown that a, a, a love of God and a desire to obey Him has not exactly been the driving force of most of their actions to this point. And so the fact that they receive a piece of an animal and are immediately overcome with the fear of Yahweh tells us that what they are doing, their response, is a direct work of the Spirit of God upon them. This is, in other words, the same sovereign spirit that we watched in chapter 9 as, as uh, all those wonderful uh, displays of providence were being worked out to bring Saul and Samuel together. It's that same sovereign spirit at work in this text. And notice, he comes upon them to produce a supernatural unity, a supernatural unity. They came out as one man. They haven't been united like that since... Maybe ever. And yet, they come out as one man. So now what you have is the people of God united together under the leadership of God's king to go and defeat the enemies of God and rescue their brothers. This is exactly what Nahash said would never happen when he came specifically to Jabesh Gilead and let those messengers run for help. And verse 8 tells us, when he, that's Saul, mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. Think about how many men that is. And just in uh, two chapters from now, we're going to see Saul is reduced to 600. He's reduced to 600. 300,000 come out from Israel, and 30,000 from Judah. All of Israel, under the control of the Spirit, has come out for this battle. And in verse 9, the messengers reassure the men of Jabesh that Israel has come to their aid. Now imagine that you are the men of Jabesh and you get this news. How would that news hit your ears? You had sent messengers out to help, out for help to one town. You sent them to Gibeah. The one town that you thought might have some sympathy for you because you hadn't attacked them decades ago. In other words, the men of Jabesh, they didn't bother sending messengers out to the whole nation, calling out to every corner, come help us, come help us. Because they knew that there was enmity between them and the rest of the nation. They probably assumed that they were still hated. 
And so I'm sure they expected almost no help to come, or if any help did come, it would be whatever the one town of Gibeah managed to muster. And yet, here the men of Jabesh get word that those whom they had not aided in battle many years ago have rallied to them in their present distress. Can you imagine the shock and the joy as they hear 330,000 of our fellow countrymen, whom we previously abandoned, are now coming to rescue us? And so they send word to Nahash in verse 10. Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. There's intentionally a little bit of ambiguity, and we could probably say righteous deception there. We'll see that idea of righteous deception later on in this book, and we'll talk about it then. But the end result is given to us in verse 11, the last verse we're covering. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. In other words, Nahash, the serpent, the questioner of God's word, has been answered and soundly defeated. And the main point I want you to see is this. This is the main takeaway. That when the word of God is challenged, and it is challenged from every corner of existence that is infected by sin, when the word of God is challenged, it is the role of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of the Divine Trinity, to vindicate that word. Nahash challenged the word of God at two points, and the Spirit acted to rebut both of those challenges by rushing upon Saul and by sending the fear of Yahweh upon all of the people so that they might destroy the enemy through a united army under God's anointed king. If the Spirit did not work, in other words, if the Spirit were not given this task of vindicating the Word of God, if He left them to their own natural outworkings, if we can use that language, then what would have happened? Saul would have remained in his cowardly disposition, and the people of God would have continued in their hatred of Jabesh Gilead, and there would have been no response. And Nahash the Ammonite would have been left to scoff at the living God as he gouged out the eyes of those men one by one. The Spirit vindicates the Word. Now, as with almost all of these Old Testament expositions, particularly these kind of these narratives, I want you to understand that the central doctrine or truth about God that we, that we come to these texts and that we pull out of them is virtually never an isolated truth that is contained merely in this text and that you won't see revealed again throughout the Scriptures because God is the God who has revealed Himself across time in His Word. And God does not change. And so therefore, when we see Him revealing something about Himself or uh, intrinsically or the way He works externally, we can be almost certain that it is something that we will encounter throughout God's revelation. And the revelation of the Holy Spirit as the vindicator of the Word of God, in the context especially of the economic trinity, is no different. In other words, this has always been the case about the relationship between the Spirit of God and the Word of God. A couple of examples. In creation, the Word spoke, right? It said, uh, let there be, let there be, let there be. During, during the six days of creation, you have that refrain, let there be. The Word is going forth. But what or who was it? who took that word that had gone forth and, uh, if we may use this word, vindicated it via action. It was the Spirit. 
Now, we're used to reading the creation story and, and hearing that little phrase, and God said, and God said, and, and we, because we know what the New Testament reveals about the deity of Christ, the Word of God, etc., we, we look back at that story and we, we see the phrase, and God said, and we go, that's the second person of the Trinity. That's the Son of God in His active role in creation. And that's true. But the phrase, and God said, is followed up by another phrase, and it was so, and it was so. And it was so. Do you know who that is? That is the Spirit of God. That is the Spirit who was, as we were told in that text, hovering like a worker, ready to spring into action at the command of His Master. The Word speaks and the Spirit vindicates it as true and right by bringing it to pass. In the garden, the Word of God declared that eating of the tree would certainly result in death and judgment. The serpent comes and questions that word, says, no, it won't. It's not going to result in death and judgment if you eat it. You will not surely die. God's word is not true. And so Adam eats. And Genesis 3 tells us that the Spirit of God, literally, it, it, it uses that word, the Spirit of God responded. They heard the sound of Yahweh God coming in the Ruach Yom, the Spirit of the day. The Spirit of the Lord. I wish I could develop it, but I don't have time. He, he came as the Spirit of judgment, and He announced the curse upon their sin. What do we have in Genesis 3? An unfolding of the curses, both eternal and temporal, that man will experience. Satan says, the word of God is not true. The Spirit comes and says, oh yes it is. And here are the specific curses that God said would happen if you ate. The Spirit vindicates the word. The word of God comes to Moses and says he's going to save Israel from Egypt. So Israel comes to the Red Sea. And both Pharaoh and Israel... Start to question the Word of God at that point. Is it really going to be so? Is the Word really going to prove true? And what happens next? We had an allusion to it in the call to worship. The Spirit of God, the breath of Yahweh, comes and blows upon the waters and opens up the highways of salvation. God's Word vindicated again by the Spirit. The Word of God said that He would lead them to the promised land. And who takes the active role of agency in carrying that out? The Spirit in the form of the pillar of cloud and fire comes and accomplishes the word that God had spoken. That is what God means when He says, None of my words shall fall to the ground or return to me empty. God can say that because the outcome is guaranteed because it is rooted in the relations that exist within the triune God such that the word of God will always be vindicated by the power of God, by the Holy Spirit Himself. God's Word is not going to return to Him void because the omnipotent Spirit has given Himself, by nature you could say, to the sole task of vindicating that Word, of making sure that it won't return to Him void. It must be this way. The very structure of the Godhead and the relationship of the persons ensures that the Word of God will never, ever be void or empty. In fact, our entire salvation is nothing but an outworking of the Spirit of God vindicating the Word of God. Because the Word of God, second person of the Trinity, became flesh and subjected himself both to the accusations of the Nahash, the serpent, and to death. The Word of God was encompassed about by accusations from the serpent on the cross. If you are the Son of God, let God save him if he really delights in him. Come down from there. God declared you were his son. 
God declared you were His chosen. God declared His Spirit would be upon you. But now look, God has abandoned your soul to death. And the Word of God inscripturated had previously predicted the sufferings and glories of the Messiah. And so as the Christ died and He laid in that tomb, again, if I may say this reverently, both the Word of God incarnate and the Word of God inscripturated hung in the balance. They awaited, what I mean by that is they awaited vindication. Christ is dead. The Christ is dead. The divine nature doesn't die. But Christ is one person with two natures. He's really dead. The serpent had said God would abandon his soul in that condition. You will abandon my soul to Hades. And if the pattern that we have seen holds true, then what is it that must vindicate the word of God as he lieth in the tomb awaiting that vindication? It's the Spirit. And so God Almighty did not send one of Jesus' disciples or a great prophet or even principally an angel to raise him from the dead. But Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that God sent the Spirit. The Spirit of God, it says, is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. There would be no salvation for you and I if this vindictory relationship did not exist between the divine Word and the divine Spirit, if the Spirit were not bound, determined, and consumed with ensuring that every Word of God is always justified. That's what He does. And there is no salvation without it. There's no hope for you without this. For Christ would still lie in a tomb. Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. And the Spirit ever lives to magnify and to vindicate that Word before all the universe. Every episode from the Old Testament where God's Word went forth and the Spirit vindicated it was a shadow and a picture pointing forward to this ultimate climactic occasion where the Spirit of God raised Jesus from His death tomb, justified in the Spirit. So in other words, what we got in today's text was rooted in history. These are real events. But they were a little bit of a foretaste of Christ's very own pneumatic vindication, His Spirit-wrought vindication. That was what it was all leading to. So then, two quick points of application to close. Plead with the Spirit in terms of His role as the vindicator of God's Word. Now, now most of you in here, and I think I've said it, I think Paul has said it and others, most of you have heard the general admonition that it is uh, a healthy aspect of prayer life to pray to the different persons of the Godhead centered around their specific and unique roles in redemption. Well, here's a really powerful one that you can use with the Holy Spirit when your prayers are targeted at the Spirit. You plead with the Spirit to act. Why? Because it's His job to ensure that the Word does not go unvindicated or unfulfilled. In other words, pick a promise of God. And don't just generically plead with God to fulfill it. Nothing wrong with that. But you can be more specific. Go beyond that. And with reverence, I would say, compel the Spirit to act in fulfillment of it. And, and as a personal testimony, this is especially helpful in the context of fighting your own personal sins. In other words, you identify a sin that has a continued hold on you. And then you run to the Spirit in prayer. And you say to Him, Sovereign Spirit, God the Father has spoken through His Son. And He's declared He's going to give a Christian power over sin. 
that He will sanctify us and cleanse us from every defilement, that He's not going to allow us to walk in our formal ways, but He will sprinkle us with water and cause us to loathe our flesh that rebels. God has said that as a sure and certain word. But right now, I see in my members a law waging war against what seems to be that specific word of God in this area of sin. And so I am entrusting myself to you, Spirit, whose job it is to make sure that God's words are always proven true. And therefore, I implore you to give me power over this sin. Give me power to put it to death. If I am unable to put to death a sin, to mortify a sin, it means that God's word is not proven true. Did God not say the Christian has power to put to death sin? Yes. Then, Spirit of God, you must not let the word of God go unfulfilled. You must not let it go unaccomplished. Give me the power to mortify that sin. Vindicate the word of God, and I know you will do it. And brethren, I can testify. I have used that specific prayer. This wasn't something I came up with when I read this text. I have used that specific prayer with numerous personal sins in my nine years or whatever it's been since I was converted. And I can testify that God gives power over sins. And He does it when you don't let Him go and you specifically implore Him on the basis of His Word. Jesus said, God gives the Holy Spirit to those who beg. So you beg for the Spirit and you implore Him to vindicate the Word of God that you be sanctified and the Spirit honors that. It may sound on the surface somewhat arrogant to, to, to feel like you're demanding something of the Spirit of God, but it's never arrogant to demand of God what God has said He will do. It's just not. That's wrong thinking. And so you come to Him and you use this in your fight against sin. You've got a... a in other words, the grounds of your hope of overcoming a particular sin that's got a hold of you is not rooted in yourself. Of course, that sounds easy and pious, but, but turn your eyes outward. It is literally rooted in the economic relations of the Trinity and internal relations of the Trinity. The Spirit vindicates the Word. That's the grounds upon which you can be assured that you will have victory over a specific sin. Now, for the sake of time, I think we're going to end it there. I want to encourage you, brethren. The Spirit of God is living and powerful, just as the Word of God is. They go together. Always they go together. View them in that way as you go about your life. Look for evidences of the Spirit vindicating the Word of God. As you see how men respond to the Gospel, you say, God's Word says that. And then now it's happening. I see it. The Spirit is vindicating the Word before my eyes. As you've got power over sin. God's Word said that I would have power over sin. I'm watching the Spirit vindicate it in my life. Christ is growing more precious in my eyes. That's exactly what God said would happen to a Christian. Why is that happening? Because the Spirit's at work. Observe these things and give thanks to the Lord. Let's go to Him now in prayer and ask Him to do all these things for us for the sake of His Son.